Psalm 90. I, I want your new year to be a happy one. And so I prepared this sermon for you, for Grace Church in particular. And having said that, you might be surprised by my chosen text. Because much of this psalm is painful to read. But if you're willing to face the reality of how we experience our time on this earth, you can come through the pain to hope and even joy. If you embrace and live in the place where the psalm takes you, you will have a happy 1993. <laughs> 2023. I should have practiced that. I'm sorry. Happy 2023. So. All right, you're laughing too hard. Come on, give me a break. If you had to do this, you'd do the same thing. Well, let's, let's read the psalm and then may God open our eyes. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So... Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. 
and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And may God give us sight to see what he has for us in this psalm. Amen. Now, I'd like to give you a broad outline of what's here, and then we can look at the details. This psalm is unique in that it is a psalm of Moses, the only one we have. And so we must wonder what in his life prompted him to write such a psalm. Was it from being stuck in, with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, watching God's people who had experienced signs and wonders in Egypt and deliverance through the Red Sea, only to quickly fall into complaining, accusing God of harming them, longing for the savory food of Egypt and giving themselves to idolatry? Is that why he wrote this? Or did he write it in Midian? as a prince of Egypt who would have identified with Egypt's slaves because they were his people. And so he was forced into exile, though he longed to see them freed from the slave driver's lash. We don't know. We don't know the specific context. But Moses had plenty of opportunity in his long life to pray this way. We call the psalm a lament over the condition of the sinful condition, over the condition of sinful human beings living in this age on the earth. It applies as much to us today as it did in Moses' day. The fruit of the lament is prayer. You'll notice the entire psalm is addressed to God, it's a prayer. The first 11 verses pray by confessing truth to God about the world and our experience in it. And the last six verses are petitions in light of what God confesses in the first part. So because of part one, we pray part two. So you could call this a psalm for those who inhabit time or how to pray in a bad day. It's for people who look back on a painful past, a past they are responsible for, and wonder about the future. One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is they give us songs to sing in different seasons of our life. A month ago, Devin pointed out that we are in a season of sorrow. We have many guests with us today, and you may not be aware, but we are a church that is grieving to an unusual degree, given our size and the sorrows that we have faced this last year. We have watched people dear to us pass away after a long illness or suddenly an unexpectedly. This is a psalm for our season. We cannot learn the wisdom of this, this psalm offers unless we face the reality of death 
and the reality of why something that seems so evil and brings us such grief is even allowed by God in the world. So let's enter into the world of this prayer and see what we can find. I've divided the psalm into three parts, and then there's a transitional part in the middle. The first part is in verses 1 and 2, and you could put it under the heading, God is with us. The psalm opens in tremendous comfort. Read it again. Lord, Moses prays, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It opens addressing our Lord. The first word in the psalm is Lord. That's a word that refers to our master and ruler. That's what Lord here alludes to. Our Lord is also our, at the end of verse 2, God, the creator and controller of the universe. So it opens with our master who is our God. This God is our dwelling place. We live in him, in his presence, under his authority. In this world, we are strangers and exiles. In God, we are at home. If we live before him under his favor, it's enough for us during our sojourn here on earth. This God has been with us always because he exists from before time began, from everlasting to everlasting. This Lord and God has always been present to bless us. There has never been a time when his people could not find their refuge and home in him. In some generations, his works flourish among us. In others, we experience decline, especially decline because of our toleration of sin or having to endure persecution. Through every generation, he has been there. In every generation, he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you a home. You can make your home in me. Now you have to, you have to take that in and see all the good packed in verses 1 and 2. Because you need to be prepared for verses 3 through 10. Otherwise, verses 3 through 10 will drive you to despair. So, number two, the second section of the psalm. Our lives are short because of God's anger. In verse 3, we face the reality of death. You return man to die. That's a reference to the curse that God put on mankind after Adam's sin in the garden. He said, you're going to return to dust. So it's quoted here. Return, O children of man. We die. Regardless of the immediate cause, we die at his command. 
Death is God's time marker for our lives. We come into the world at His command and we leave it at His command. Both our birth and our death are no mistake, as perplexing as the circumstances of both may be. We think our lives of great significance. We do everything we can to preserve our lives and increase our security in them and our happiness. But in comparison to God's time horizons, our sojourn here on earth is not as significant as we may think. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. There is a watch in the night. A thousand years, longer than the lifespan of the oldest man recorded in the Bible. In God's sight, Methuselah's life is like our memory of yesterday. Or a time a guard spends watching over a city for three or four hours at night. If God's day is a thousand years, our 70 years compare to a lunch break. In the light of God's time horizon, verses 5 and 6 show us how fleeting our lives truly are. Death inundates this world like a flood, wiping away all that finds itself in the path of its torrents. We're like desert grasses, looking lush in our youth, growing swiftly, yet the scorching heat of the day drives the life out of us by nightfall. So I want to stop here for a minute. What time horizon do you live by? Graduation? Birth of a child? Next promotion? Next vacation? Better job? A wedding? Retirement? Or maybe just getting through the next week of work or getting over this illness or this medical treatment. Is that your time horizon? We live in an exceptionally materially prosperous country and some people seem to live charmed lives in which they succeed at everything. They attend the best schools, move from one fulfilling job to the next with pay raises along the way. They marry the beautiful spouse, and their children are all talented and good-looking. That's what they think. Seeing your life in the light of your past accomplishments or your next success will set you up for disaster. When you widen your view, you realize that this life is so very short Our best accomplishments are temporary. Our greatest pleasures are fleeting. All of us die. And the day of our death, controlled by God, is not known to us. But it's worse than that. Verses 7 through 9 tell us why we die. We die because of God's wrath for our sins. We are brought to an end, verse 7 says, by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed 
You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We live in a world that is frightened by death, but there's something worse than death. There is a God who must, that's right, he must bring our lives to an end as a consequence of our rebellion against his just and righteous character. In verse 9, Moses tells us that we should, that death should dismay us because it reflects God's wrath for our sins, for each and every sin. Even for those sins we think nobody else can see. None of our sins are hidden from his sight. Each of them is worthy of his punishment. Now, at this point, because I said this is bracing, tough stuff, some of you will want me to make a turn. But surely, John, our sins are forgiven in Christ and we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. And that's true. And we will get there. But that's not the point of verses 7 and 8. The direct cause of our death is more than that we were born from the seed of our father Adam and therefore born inheriting his sin. We also die because of our own sins, our particular sins, our hidden sins that we think no one can see or no one will ever know about. Moses' concern is that we see beyond the fact of death to the cause of our death, the wrath of God for our sins. You want to know how bad your sins are? We need no more explanation than that they require death. And we know how bad death is. When I die, it will be because I am a sinner. Verses 9 and 10 sum up the psalm so far. Even if we live life long, our lives are short, and in our lives we experience toil and trouble. And all this is because we live in an age of mankind's rebellion against God and God's response of holy wrath. And now we come to a transition. Verses 11 and 12 work like a hinge on a door. Verse 11 brings us to a conclusion of response or calls us to response. And verse 12 begins to show us how to respond to the fact of the toil and trouble and death of life. Verse 11, read it again. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. Few consider, he's saying, who does this? Who goes out on a beautiful, sunny January 1st day to ponder what's in verses 3 through 10? Who does this? 
Who considers the reality of death and the reasons behind it? And the question implies a calling on us. Be one of those people. Consider the Lord in the power of His anger. Consider the one who created us to bless us, but must judge us for rejecting Him and His blessing in our sin. Consider all the toil and trouble and finally death that our rebellion has brought upon us. Once you embrace these realities, you are ready to pray the next verse. Verse 12, which is the second half of our transition. So, so, in light of verses 1 through 11, so, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us. This is a learning process. You don't get this all at once takes time. If your life has encountered little toil and trouble and you have not had to confront the reality of death, this prayer may seem unnecessary to you. But I would urge you, even if your life, if you are in the flourishing part, the the young and new grass part of life, I would urge you to learn to pray this prayer now. You need God to teach you. We must learn to number our Days. God must teach us to number our days. What does Moses mean here? Surely he's not talking about counting them. I did. I've lived, as of today, best I can tell, uh, 24,392 days. And that is no help in gaining any wisdom. So what does Moses mean? How do we number or count our days? Well, we number the day of our birth and we number the day of our death. And we realize that the span of our life is minuscule when compared to the ages of mankind and the span of God's existence. Then we consider that the last day of our life, the day of our death, is only known to God, who alone determines when it will happen. Then we number the toil and trouble of our days and our fear of our own death and our grief over the death of others. This is what I think verse 11, verse 12 calls us to number. Consider this. Now number it. Count it. Look at your life. We're to see our lives in the context of our created nature, the span of God's time, the fallen nature of our world, and our own sinful state, and God's judgment which He executes with every death. That's the context that we should be numbering our days. And if we ponder this and allow God to shape our thinking by considering this, We will gain wisdom in our inner being. We'll get a heart of wisdom. We will be prepared to pray the next part of the psalm in light of the last part of the first part of the psalm. God gives us these prayers. 
And he gives them to us as we pray for wisdom in the verses that follow. So now we are ready for moving out of the transition into part three of the psalm. We must pray for God's favor during our short sojourn on this earth. We must pray for God's favor. Verses 13 through 17. Before we look at each petition, note this. Verse 13, look at verse 13. It says, return, O Lord. Now, O Lord is in all capital letters. Do you see that? But the psalm begins with Lord. It's not in all capital letters. Because it's two different titles for God. The Lord of verse 1 uses the Hebrew word for a master or a ruler. Verse 2 addresses him as God, identifying his creative and controlling power. But when Lord is in all capital letters, it refers to God's personal name only to be used by his people. If you know him as Lord, you can address him as your personal God, who has bestowed the favor of relationship on you. You are praying to the God who has bestowed his committed love on you. So that's how Moses leads us to pray. Lord. Now, let's look at the prayers. And remember, these are all prayers for us as a people. They're corporate prayers. Not just for me, it's for all of us together. First, verse 13, we pray for mercy. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. When life is characterized by toil and trouble and death, we groan under its pain and the anxiety and depression and loneliness it produces in us. And we ask God to show mercy in our misery and to put an end to our long experience of difficulty. So we pray for mercy. The Lord knows it's hard, but He has mercy. He says, pray for mercy. I want to show you pity. Second, verse 14, the second petition makes the pity of verse 13 specific. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's stunning. What a reversal. Make your committed, faithful, everlasting love for us satisfy us. Let us get up in the morning and encounter you in your steadfast love to a degree where we say that's enough for the whole day. This is going to be a good day, whatever this day may bring, because you in your love are enough. Even in our darkest day, we can be satisfied in His love, resulting in our rejoicing and being glad. It is possible all our days. Then third, in verse 15, we pray for a great reversal of our experience. 
Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Yes, we have been afflicted. Yes, evil has assaulted us. But our affliction taught us to number our days and to see your steadfast love. Let our days be characterized by gladness and joy because what we are happy in is the one who is our dwelling place who has come down to us in pity and love fourth prayer gives us eyes to see through the fallen nature of our world and the evil that lies evil lies that seek to Deceive us. Make us, I'm sorry, verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So you can't, you can't look at life the way it is, the way it's arrayed before you in all its difficulties, all its fears and anxieties, all the broken promises and the failure of the things that we look to for escape or happiness to fail us. You, you have to be able to interpret that through the lens of God's view of it. We need eyes to see through the fallen nature of our world. So we pray, give us eyes to see how you are already working in the world. Cause our children to see your glorious power as well. Kids don't automatically get this. It's got to be transferred to them. You need to put those spectacles on them so that they can see and interpret their life in light of God's wrath and in light of God's love. In light of God's power and in light of God's mercy. Fifth, we pray, let our lives be filled with your favor so that our work in this world, our work to provide for ourselves and those who are under our care to serve God and advance his gospel to love our neighbors, we're praying, establish this work. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let it be fruitful. Even if our work entails toil and trouble, let it be productive. Let it endure even to our children's generation. See, if you don't have this perspective and you get to be my age, you start to wonder, was all that effort really worth it? All those things that seem now to have no effect on anything, was that worth it? And I need eyes to see how God worked in me and through me and in the time it was good and I can be grateful for it and I can be continue to be faithful and think just going to keep trying because he does do some good through me and people have been helped by me by his grace 
And so I can move forward in the midst of toil and trouble and death because He promises as He tells me to pray that He would establish my work, somehow there is fruit that's born. may not be impressive. I may not even be aware of it. But in every point that I've been faithful, He will use that in some way within His economy to make it prosper. So these prayers, these prayers in verses 12 through 17 give us an expectation that our life is not all sorrow. There is real joy and real delight and real fruitful accomplishment to be had during our short sojourn here on earth. We can be glad in the moment. We really can. Despite the condition of this world and the condition of our own hearts, we can be full of joy. Not only because of God's steadfast love that is upon us, but because God has made our lives meaningful. That there is fruit to be born. And even if it doesn't seem to last, that does not mean that the Lord doesn't see it and count it for something. This is how we find wisdom in a world under judgment, a world filled with toil and trouble, with each life cut short by death. We see God's hand in all of it. We depend on Him and His covenant promises to keep us through this age. We find satisfaction in Him, and that cannot be touched by any circumstance in our earthly existence. We depend on Him and His covenant promises to keep us through this age. We find our satisfaction in Him. We keep working even when our work is toilsome, knowing that God will make us fruitful in His time according to His plans. And we pray that all of this will be transferred to the next generation. This psalm gives us Moses' time horizon. But the Bible's insight into time doesn't end there. Okay, we're, we're picking it up with someone who's at relatively beginning of God's covenant work in the world. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who dwelt above time, entered into time. This should amaze us. The God of wrath, the God who is angry over sin, sent His Son to enter into our time and experience all the toil and trouble we experience. Jesus came at God the Father's bidding. And in full agreement with His Father, He came to die. Not for his own sins. He had none. Came to die for our sins. He didn't defeat sin and death by rising above them 
and by entering into us, but by entering into a sinful world to experience all its toil and trouble, and then to experience the judgment of a death he did not deserve. It's astounding. He defeated death not by avoiding death, but by rising from the dead to return to his place of eternal life and honor and rule. We follow him now, so we can now read this psalm in light of that, and we are following him in his life and in his death. That means we too experience all the sorrow and toil and trouble this life brings, just as he did. The big difference is we deserve it. He did not. So we work with temporary fruitfulness. We rejoice and are glad in the blessings he gives us. And then we die. Just as he did, though we deserve it, he did not. And then we rise with him and we live again. We transcend the painful realities of Psalm 90 to a new life. A life that has no time horizon. (laughs) Nothing to be anxious about anymore. No longer wondering if this could happen. It's all good. So today we live in a world like Jesus lived in this world, mourning our sin, fearing death, going to work and toiling, and it doesn't seem to launch, finding trouble around every bend. We live in that world as Jesus did, knowing that our death is not the final word on our life. But there's a resurrection for us, too. Every week, we remember this when we take the Lord's Supper together. We eat the bread of his body broken in death. We drink from the cup that represents God's wrath and requires shed blood. And we invite to this meal anyone who has submitted his or her life to Jesus and follows him in his life and in his death and in the hope of his resurrection. Now, if you're not following Jesus... This meal is not for you. And what we want you to know is though he doesn't invite you to this meal, we and he are delighted that you're here today to hear this story. And we would encourage you to consider what this life is really like, what your experience of life has been like, and that the answers to all your questions are not found in this world, but in the God who made this world and sent his son to make this world right. So we pray that God would open your eyes to the reality of his work and that you would realize that though life seems dominated by toil and trouble and death, 
It's all been overcome in Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to number our days and that we would get wisdom for how to look at this world and walk through this life. We pray that you would have pity on us, your servants, because this life can be very hard and we feel very vulnerable and we experience the grief and sorrow of loss and the anxiety of sickness and pain. We pray that you would satisfy us with your never-failing, constant, faithful love. And that we would be a happy people even in a season of grief. That we would be able to rejoice and be glad all our days. And that you would give us eyes to see your work, not only in us, but Lord, we pray eyes to see your work in our children and that your favor would rest upon us and that you would establish our work. Though it be temporary, it would be established and that your favor and your kingdom and your glory would go from our generation to our children's generation and beyond. And so now, Lord, open our eyes to how all this is possible as we take this meal. We ask you this in Jesus' name.